So Jesus, we ask that you would use the words I'm going to speak, the thoughts we're going to think in these next few minutes to help us know how that scripture can guide our paths. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I went to pick my oldest daughter, Holly, up from our middle school youth group. And when I got there, she saw me, rolled her eyes, and said, Dad, I'm not ready to go. Go away. So I felt very affirmed by that. So I went over to talk to some of the staff, and as I walked across the room, I heard, I heard all this whispering from some of the middle schoolers, and I could kind of tell that it was about me. And, you know, I'm kind of used to that. A lot of people know me. I, I'm a legend in my own mind. So... So I just assumed that they were saying, you know, look, there's the pastor. But then I listened more closely. That's not what they were saying at all. You know what they were saying? There's Holly's dad. So I've gone from being the pastor to Holly's dad. It was kind of an identity crisis moment for me, right? You know what is so wonderful about that moment? That tells me that my daughter is in a place that is helping her discover who she is in Christ. Not the pastor's daughter, not this kind of student, not that kind of athlete, a place that she is discovering her unique identity in Jesus. And that is something that all of us need, but I think especially so the youth in in our culture. We're doing a sermon series called Factory Reset about how sometimes, you know, like our computers or smartphones, we get all messed up from the culture around us, and we just need to reset some stuff in order to have more joyful, abundant lives. Well, one of the things that I think needs reset is what our culture is doing to our youth. And I know that right off the bat, for many of you, you may be thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me because I don't have kids, or, or maybe for some of you, my kids have grown up already. But I want, just hang on with me for just a little bit because I think this actually applies to everyone in this room for a couple of reasons. One, even if you don't have kids or if your kids are grown, you may have nieces or nephews or younger brothers or sisters or, or, or neighbors in your neighborhood that are young. Or maybe grandkids. I mean, grandparents can have a huge impact on a youth's life, uh, even from afar, even just over email. If you are a young adult, you may know some uh, younger people in your life, and, and they're looking to you as a role model. If you're in high school, you may know a junior higher. If you're in junior high, you may know an elementary school student. And if you're in high school, I would say you can listen to this sermon and email me if I get something wrong in it, so let me know. But more than that, the real issue is what the scriptures we read talk about is a community's call. It is a community's call to help the next generation experience Jesus and pass on the story of faith. And certainly that's a parent's role, but Jesus makes it clear he also gives that mission to the church. Christianity is always just one generation away from extinction, and God calls all of us to help the next generation experience who Jesus is. And this church has been doing that for 55 years, and you guys do a great job at this. Through our youth ministries, our children's programs, our youth choirs, Jubilee Reach Center, Kid Reach, uh, Eastside Academy, we, we are a church that cares about youth. You know, we just gave Bibles to kindergartners in this service. Later today at the congregational meeting, which I hope you'll come back for because there will be donuts. But more than that, more than the donuts, we will be voting on welcoming a new pastor of children and family ministries into our congregation. So this seems like a good day to talk about this. Plus, I can tell you from my own experience that one of the most rewarding things in life is having younger people in being in relationship with younger people. It keeps me young. 
it, we get to be part of making a difference in someone's life, and the relationships are some of the coolest you're ever going to have. Right? And, and, and even if you don't have time to mentor a, a young person, even if you don't have that kind of time, even just how we collectively welcome them as a church, even in just the little things we say to the, the, those in our church or in your neighborhood can make a huge difference. And I'll talk a little bit about that as the sermon goes on. Now, uh, mostly what I'm going to be talking about in this sermon is our teenagers, but really a lot of what I'm going to say could apply to anyone younger than you. How do you bless and empower someone younger than you? That younger person in your office or whatever it is, okay? But I am going to kind of mostly focus on teenagers. I will admit up front that I do not yet have teenagers. My oldest is 12, so I'm just on the verge. So some of you might want to take careful notes of what I say for the joy of reminding me of my own words later on, a couple of years. The two texts we read today talk a lot about how we bless and empower those who are younger than us. And you see that in the story from Genesis, where Jacob is about to die, so he calls together his 12 sons, who by this point are middle-aged, to bless them. It is never too late to bless your children. And, but some, it's kind of a mixed blessing, because some of Jacob's words are wonderful, like what he says to his son Judah, you... You are a lion's cub. The scepter will not depart from you, O macho Judah, right? I mean, wow, thanks. That's awesome, right? But then some of them, like what he says about his son Issachar, he says, Issachar will grow up to submit to forced labor. Bummer, you know, like, God. You know, and then, and then he says of his son Naphtali that you are a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Okay, not a great image for a guy, right? Like, you know, thanks, Dad. What's your point, right? I mean, you've got to love these Old Testament fathers and the way they treat their kids, right? Like, you, you, you are my beloved, you are my favorite, you are my joy, you not so much. <laughs> but I think in a way that's kind of what we do to the youth in our culture. Not so much play favorites, but give mixed messages. One of my children, who will go unnamed, but whose permission I have to tell this story, feels compelled to get all A pluses at school. And as a result, is just always stressed out about it. And my wife and I don't want said child to grow up to be a workaholic stress case. So one night, said child was freaking out about an assignment that the child had at school. I'm trying to avoid gender, and I'm getting caught up in my words. The child had at school freaking out about this assignment when we were trying to have some time together as a family. So I said, look, school is important, but relationships and family are more important, so I want you to get a C on this assignment. I committed Bellevue blasphemy. And not, not in the class, just on this assignment to see that it will not be the end of the world. So then we had our family time, and then the child went back to studying, and I went back to my computer thinking to myself, how did a child of mine end up being so stressed out about performance and success? As I sat down to continue writing the sermon, I'd stressed out about it all day long. I, I can't figure out what I'm doing wrong as a parent. Maybe some of you can help me later. Mixed messages. I think that's what a lot of our youth feel, not just from parents, but from our whole culture. And this is where this sermon hits all of us, because guys, we are the culture. Adolescence is a tightrope where you have to move from being a child to being an adult, and it is hard to do. I have a friend who said that one night at dinner, he and his family were talking about what charities they would give to if they had a million dollars. And they were saying things like, you know, build hospitals or help the homeless. And then his 10-year-old son said, I'd want to give money to help end world puberty. I think he meant poverty, <laughs> but he has a point. Right? Like, it is a hard journey, right? That journey from childhood to, to adulthood, that's a hard journey. And 200 years ago, that used to be a short walk. 
right? You were done by 17 or 18. But then with the Industrial Revolution and now with globalization and specialization, that walk has gotten a lot longer. Many, career, uh, many, many careers now require advanced degrees. It takes longer to get financially set up. And so things like marriage and entering career that used to happen at 22 or 23 are now happening later and later and later, which has given rise to a whole new phase of life sociologists call emerging adulthood or young adults, you know, for folks in their 20s, which is a whole different thing than adolescence. It's not the same. It's a unique phase in itself. Some people call it the odyssey years. And all the while, our culture has put in all kinds of, of pressure on our youth. All kinds of pressure. Pressure to succeed. I mean, certainly all of us feel that and grew up with that, but I, I think it's getting more intense. Standards for college admission are going up and up. Many of us could not get into the colleges we went to today. Right? And plus, in some communities like this one, I have talked to many students in this church who say, it's just, it's just in the air, and you, if you don't go to an Ivy League or a top-name school, you, know, you just feel like a loser and they'll say things like, I know that I'm going to get into college. I'm just so afraid that I'm going to end up having to go to, and I could so put in so many, you know, joke names there, but, you know, it's some perfectly respectable state college. How did we get there? That that feels like you're a loser. All kinds of pressure. Then there's the sexualization of our culture and everything from advertising to internet pornography that gives all kinds of messages to our youth. Because of the high divorce rate, many young people do not believe that relationships and marriage can ever work. And spiritually speaking, there's so many competing worldviews out there, it's very confusing. And even kids raised in the church very often jettison their faith when they're adults. Experts in the field like Chap Clark, whose work I'm drawing from heavily in this sermon, say that it takes five to seven adults other than their parents in a, in a child's life to help them walk that tightrope. And many of our youth have it, in teachers, in extended family coaches, you know, but increasingly, with families living farther apart, with neighborhoods becoming more anonymous. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood, we said, where you know, anybody could yell at anybody's kid, you know, and you had this sense of communal raising of children. That, a lot of places, that's gone. Plus, the busyness of life, fewer and fewer of our youth have adults in their lives with no other agenda than just to be there for them. Not to tutor some skill or teach them some sport or something like that, just to be there for them. The kind of folks who are there just to say like the coach or the teacher who will listen, has the time to listen to a kid's life and say things like, you know, that was a great touchdown today, but I'm really proud of you for is the way you give the credit to the team. That shows true humility. Right? And that's still out there a lot, but it's just because of the busyness of life, it's less and less and less. And the youth want it. You know, unlike my generation that said never trust anyone over 30 until we all turn 30, right? This is a generation that wants adults in their life. So if you're like me sometimes and you see younger people and you think, man, you are so young and to you I must look, so, I must look like the crypt keeper, right? And you wouldn't want me in your life. I mean, you know, I, I got clothes in my closet older than you, right? No. There's no age limit here. You're in your 20s, you can invest in someone in their teens, you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you name it. They want older folks in their lives. As Chap Clark puts it, Hillary Clinton's ghostwriter got it right. It takes a village. And that's not a political statement. That's just, it is. Except this, there are no villages left. Except one. So I'd change that. It doesn't take a village. It takes a church. 
And that's what the passage we read today talks about. A community of people who will bless and empower the next generation. Not through lectures and advice giving. That's not what the text says. It's very interesting. It says this, talk about them. That is God's precepts. When you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, do life together. Live the life of faith together. That's how you pass it on. As you eat, as you work, as you're going about your business. Show, don't tell. And there are four things all of us need, really. All of us need. But four things in particular the people who are younger than us need that I just want to touch on. And the first is this. All of us need, but particularly younger people, need a community where they have something to contribute, where they know, where they have people that tell them they have something to contribute. You know, in Deuteronomy, the youth are considered a vital part of the community. And they have a role to ask questions and probe the mysteries of their collective faith. And youth are like anyone else. They want to know that their lives count, that their lives matter, that they can influence something. They have something to give. And they do. You know, one of the wonderful things about younger people is many times they are not encumbered with some of the past baggage that some of us have or, or the, the commitments and the mortgages and all that stuff that tie us down. So they can dream big dreams, right? They don't know why something can't be done. What a wonderful character trait, right? So often they'll come up, you know, why can't we do X? And it'll be some wonderful vision, right? And that's the kind of thing that keeps people young, that keeps churches young. I mean, churches that stop listening to their youth, they die pretty quick. Now, I'm not saying that older folks don't have vision. Of course older folks have vision. But it can be amplified by listening to our younger people. Plus, younger people can also help us stay current with the ever-changing culture. You know, they can help us know the difference between tweeting and poking and texting and all that. And if you don't know what any of that means, you need a younger person in your life to explain it. A retired man this week told me that at Christmas, they had a, a collection of kind of acquaintances over for Christmas dinner. And they all had very different political and religious views, sharply held. And when the conversation turned to religion, this retired man got kind of nervous because there were Christians, atheists, people who hated church because they'd been burned by it. And, and he just didn't know how to navigate that conversation. But one of the people that was there was a young man that this retired guy had been mentoring. And he said this young guy knew exactly how to handle that conversation and talked about Jesus in a way that didn't offend anybody, and it was just this wonderful conversation once this young guy took over. Right? And the older man said later, I realize it's because that young man grew up in a pluralistic, global, internet-wired world where Christianity is no longer the norm. So he knew that landscape far better than I did because I grew up in a more homogenous culture. Our young folk have something to offer, and we need to let them know that they do. The second thing they need is people who will help them become who they were created to be. Proverbs 22 says, Raise up children in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And people usually read that and say, Well, teach them right and wrong, and they'll be good. That's not what it actually means. In the Hebrew, it says, Train up children according to their bent. In other words, you don't try to bend someone the opposite way that God has bent them. You don't make an athlete out of a musician or an academic out of a wilderness-type person. Our job is to help really all of us, but especially the people who are younger than we are, discover who God has made them. They are made in the image of God, not the image of parents, not the image of culture, not the image of celebrity. Who is God making them? By asking them questions and affirming what we see in them. Einstein said this. Einstein said, if you judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree, the fish will spend its whole life thinking it's dumb. Too many of our youth feel like fish being told to climb a tree. 
You got to have this kind of career. You got to have this kind of schooling. You got to have this on your resume. This, and it may not be who God has created them to be. Our job is to help them find out who that really is. A third thing all of us need, but I think especially our youth, a safe place to belong. A no-judgment zone where they can be who they are, think out loud, make mistakes, have mood swings, bad days, good days, because all of us do that. And have folks who are not going to jump in with a bunch of advice, but instead do two things. Ask questions and tell stories. Ask questions about them and tell stories of your own struggles, your own successes, your own failures, how Jesus met you and all of that. Now, I know that sometimes as parents, we, we have to you know, give advice, a.k.a. rules. That's our job. That's why parents need other adults in their kids' lives. I mean, I will often say things to a young person that I know darn well their parents have told them, right? And I'll watch the, I'll watch the young person go, what a great thought. I love that, right? Now, I know their parents have said that. But sometimes it's just easier to hear it from someone who's not your parent, right? I mean, even as adults... Sometimes it's just easier to hear it from someone who's not your parent, right? I've heard it said that home is where you can rest all your peculiarities. I love that because we're all peculiar and we all need a place where we can just be peculiar and grow through that. And then finally, one last thing our youth need is a community that helps them find their place in God's rescue mission. The text in Deuteronomy says, When your children ask, What is the meaning of these decrees? You're to tell them this. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. In other words, tell the story of what God is doing, liberating his people, and then more importantly, help them find their place in that ongoing story of God's liberation and salvation. What's their place? Help them find that, not by telling them, but by showing them, by living it out together. You see, our young people, really all of us, we don't need religion, we don't need lectures, we don't need moral precepts. They want to see Jesus in action. That's why studies show that kids who grow up in families that pray together and serve in mission together are more likely to retain their faith as adults because they've seen it lived out. Because here's the thing, Christianity is is caught, not taught, right? It's not taught, it's more like a virus, right? It's caught by close, repeated contact with someone who has the Christian bug, right? And a lot of times we don't get that. A lot of times we think that if we just come to church and you know, maybe let the pastor sneeze on us while he preaches or something like that, we'll get the Christian bug. But it only works if in close, repeated contact with someone who's really got it. That's why Jesus came himself in the flesh, not to read a paper, not to lecture us, to show us in the flesh what life and faith looks like. And to me, this is where relationship with younger people gets so exciting. They challenge me. They help me grow. They ask hard questions. And it motivates me to follow Jesus more because I want to be the kind of man that these younger people are looking to me to be. A long time ago, I think I told you about how when I was first a college pastor, I, I, I never took time off to be with my family. I just worked all the time. I had two young kids at the time. I just worked all the time. Well, in the middle of this, two young guys who were on my staff offered to buy me lunch. Well, as soon as we got to the restaurant, we sat down, and one of them looked at me and goes, you're bumming us out. Wow, okay. Why? He goes, because you you work all the time, and you never take time to be with your family. It's bumming us out. And I, I gave some excuse about how hard the job was. And then he said, yeah, yeah, we see you trying to be an excellent pastor, but we want you to be an excellent man, excellent husband, and an excellent father, because that's who we want to be, and you're supposed to show us how. Ouch. 
wow, I mean, that took some guts, right? I mean, I was their mentor, I was their boss, I could fire them, so I did. <laughs> Mostly, I felt loved. And from then on, I started to take Sabbath, spend more time with my family. It was a moment of mutual mentoring, them calling me to my best self and me wanting to rise to that challenge. So who are the younger folks in your life? You've got to know somebody younger that you can pour into. All kinds of ways to get involved. Certainly our children and our youth ministry would love to have more volunteers. You could participate and get on the bus to go help at Tillicum Middle School or Jubilee Reach Center. There's Eastside Academy and KidReach. You can take opportunities in your own family, nieces, nephews, younger siblings, grandparents. My dad emails all of his grandkids constantly just to encourage and affirm them. It's making a huge difference over email. And I think he might someday even learn how to text. It's quite possible. Maybe even get on Facebook. It may happen, right? Opportunities in your own family, opportunities in your neighborhood. And mostly, you can continue to be and become even more so the kind of church that welcomes our youth and loves them, even in the little things you say. One of our elders grew up in this church, and she talks about how she has this memory of one day running on a Sunday night, running through the old building with some of her friends when she was about 16, and just making a whole bunch of noise up there in, that old, in the old, old building on a Sunday night. And she said at one point she ran around a corner and ran smack into Frank Burgess, who was the founding pastor of this church. And if you know Frank, Frank has this deep, booming voice that really does sound like the voice of God. Right? Like, he scares me. Like, he, he's just scary, this voice. Right? And she says she ran into him, and she said she just remembers being kind of terrified because there he was. He said he just looked down at her, and he smiled, and he said, I am so glad you're here, and it's good to see you having fun. And she said that made this church feel like a second home, that one little thing. How long did it take Frank to say that? Ten seconds? But it made a huge difference. You can do that. I want to read part of an email. A man in our church, who I'll call Steve, got from a young man he mentored for several years. And all Steve would do is meet for lunch once a week with this young guy and ask him questions about what I call the three G's, God, grades, girls. And Steve would just listen, tell stories from his own growing up years, uh, tell this young man that he was proud of him, and occasionally give a little bit of advice when he knew he had permission to do it. Well, the younger man is now well into his late 20s and he's married and he decided to send Steve a thank you email. And this is part of it. Steve, I just wanted to thank you for what you have meant to me. You have been Jesus to me as well as a father, a brother, a teacher, and a friend because of how you shared your life with me. Through your successes and through your failures, you make me want to follow Jesus more. You have a way of tapping into who I really am and helping me to ask the hard questions. You've let me have good days, you've let me have bad days, and everything in between with no judgment. You've shown me how to be a better man for my wife and someday for the kids that I'm going to have. Thank you for taking a genuine interest in me and for always being honest with me. I thank God for you, I thank God for your story, and I thank God that you shared it with me. I hope this comes across as authentic in anything but cliche because I really mean it when I say thank you. You have changed my life. So what's it like to get an email like that? I mean, you may not get it after one year or two or even three. It may not even come in words. But when we invest in a younger person, pour into the generation behind us, we always get back more than what we gave. We get younger at heart. We gain a really good friend. 
and we get to make a difference in someone's life, and they get to make a difference in ours. But more than that, I believe we start to make a difference in this world. As we help each other, younger and older, push back on the culture that is pushing so hard on us. You've heard me talk about this before, but I believe God wants to revive the east side, revive marriages, revive families, revive people in poverty, revive us spiritually, but I don't think that's going to happen unless we do three things. First, pray and fast for revival. Second, the churches have got to work together. But third, the generations have got to come together so that we don't have what is increasingly the norm, a a church apartheid with older folks going to this church over here and younger folks going to this church over here, but instead we can be the whole family of God as Jesus intended it to be. In Acts, when the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles and ignites the first revival ever, Peter gets up and quotes the prophet Joel and says, In the latter days, God says this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Young and old together, dreaming dreams. Revival is intergenerational. So that in a culture where older folks sometimes just feel shoved aside and younger folks don't feel respected, instead we can continue to become that community where each generation blesses, encourages, and empowers the other. And then I think we would see younger folks longing for the blessing of their elders flocking to our churches and older folks who, who, who flocking to churches because they feel valued, affirmed, and respected. The passion and the vision of the young combined with the wisdom and the blessing of the older generations, that is a winning combination. And it can change your family, your office, your church, your world. It can change your life forever. So Jesus, thank you that you put us in generations. Thank you that you put us together, young and old. Thank you that that's your vision for your church. And we ask that you would help us continue to be that church, and see the people in the generation behind us and the generation in front of us. And Lord, with your power, bless and affirm one another and see you in the process. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift of generations. We pray it in your name. Amen.